Welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Bianca. And I'm Gianna. So Gianna, I need to tell you about my weekend. You had such a fun looking weekend. Oh my goodness. Also very random weekend. I guess so. I mean, maybe for someone in Oklahoma, it was a little (laughs) bit random. So this weekend, I went to a place called Treasure Lake in western Pennsylvania. And while we were there, I was able to drive and meet a local celebrity. Wow, what a celebrity that was. I I took a little day trip to Punxsutawney, PA, and I saw with my eyeballs through a little bit of glass, Punxsutawney Phil, the groundhog. (laughs) How iconic. Do you feel different now that you've met the celebrity? You know, I do. I do feel a little different. I can say that I've been to the weather capital of the world. Yeah. And um, Phil does have a little lady friend groundhog, and I believe her name is Philomena, which is what my name was supposed to be. Yeah. So we're like really connected, you know. Wow. It was meant (laughs) to be. But I, I actually came home yesterday. And I watched Groundhog Day because I thought, I was like, oh, I'm going to rewatch this. I want to see, like, in the movie, all the places that I saw with my eyeballs yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I start, I start watching the movie, and it looks completely different. Like, the movie doesn't look at all what I saw when I was there. And so I'm researching all about the Groundhog Day movie. And it turns out that the film was actually filmed in Woodstock, Illinois. Oh. None of it none of it was filmed in Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's a bummer. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Because there's this whole there's this whole place in Punxsutawney called Gobbler's Knob, which is where <laughs> Phil comes out <laughs> and predicts the weather. And so I'm watching the movie and the sign kind of looks the same, but it was moved to like a different area. And I was like, well, that's weird. Maybe they moved it to like the town square for the sake of the movie. Nope. (laughs) It just was all in Illinois. But there you go. I I can say that I, unlike Bill Murray, have been to the real place. Oh, yeah. So you got a leg up on Bill Murray. I see. Totally. He'd probably be really mad at me for saying that because I was reading about how the set of Groundhog Day was actually very contentious. Really? And I don't believe that Bill had a a really fun time on set. Wow, that's a bummer. I hate learning about that stuff. I know. It was actually really sad to read. (laughs) Yeah. Happy for you. Got to see some groundhogs. Are you sure it wasn't a river otter? (laughs) (laughs) A river otter, river otter. Jewel, if you're listening, me and Juliana have this really embarrassing story where we were at the riverfront in Delaware. And because this random ass woman on the street told us that there was a river otter out here, we just unquestionably believed her and took a million pictures of something that was not a fucking river otter. What did it end up being? Do you know? I have no idea. I think it was like a, a beaver. No, it wasn't a beaver. It was. I don't know. It was probably like a fucking squirrel or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. 
Maybe it was a groundhog. Maybe it was Punksy Phil coming to visit you. (laughs) Playing pranks on us. (laughs) He's a trickster, that one. So in other news, the reboot of the movie The Witches starring Anne Hathaway comes out this week. And I'm curious if any of the art Pop-Tarts or Bianca, have you all seen the original Witches with the queen of all queens, Angelica Houston? No, I haven't. Gianna, I didn't know that this was a thing until you were telling me you watched the Angelica Houston version. Yeah. So I'm very interested. First of all, I guess I need to watch the original. I'm, I stan Angelica Houston ever after. Come I, on. I know. Smash? I know. Icon. But I'm glad to actually have two new fun Halloween movies that I can watch and I believe that the reboot seems to have a good cast no mm-hmm. yeah I think it will be good I think it's not gonna have the same quirky charm as the original mm-hmm. uh, Jim Henson who you all probably know who worked on the Muppets and what was the other one the Dark Crystal he did all the kind of puppetry and produced uh, the original witches. So it kind of mm-hmm. has that quirky Jim Henson vibe to it, mm-hmm. which I think is the appeal. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it's one of those good Halloween cult classic films. So I mm-hmm. think that this reboot is not going to have the same kind of charm to it already in mm-hmm. looking at the the animation of it all. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it doesn't have that same vibe. So I think it'll be good. The original is, it's just like quirky and ridiculous and all the witches turn all these little like children into mice. It's just like funny and stupid, but Angelica Houston has the funniest, most interesting accent in it that isn't Cute. necessarily linked to like a particular region. She's just being so bougie and I just love it. But Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, I need to watch. I believe it's and on then, Netflix. Okay, great. And then I'll watch the uh, I'll watch the reboot, which is exciting. Yeah, give us something to do. Yeah, I'll watch it this weekend. I bought some chestnuts at the farmers market, so Ooh. maybe I'll roast them up and drink some wine. Wow, that sounds like a lovely evening. Yeah. My goodness. well i think we have some art news this week gianna if you're ready i think i'm ready i i kind of feel like we need to get josh on an art news sound or do you think that would be too much Mm, you know what why not ask that's why you have a musical brother-in-law yeah because i don't know about the art news and then the pop and then we got a lot of sounds going on you know at the beginning so i feel like we'll just play with it Josh should just do in his screamer voice just art news. Art news! That would really fit the vibe, I think. Okay, cool, cool. We'll set that up. (laughs) (laughs) So Simone Lee, who is a Brooklyn-based sculptor whose large-scale works address the social histories and experiences of Black women, will represent the United States at the next Venice Biennial in April 2022. Lee is the first Black woman to represent the U.S. at the exhibition. Lee said, I feel like I'm part of a larger group of artists and thinkers who have reached critical mass, and despite the really horrific climate that we've reached, It still doesn't distract me from the fact of how amazing it is to be a black artist right now. 
the artist's work has continually elevated the labor of black women. She has fused representations of black women's bodies with the, I'm going to quote a New York Times article here, architectural forms from Africa or utilitarian vessels such as jugs and pitchers made and used throughout the African diaspora. So Gianna, I'm kind of thinking, I don't know about you, but Venice trip 2022, yes? Oh yeah, I mean, I don't do anything else these days besides look at the prices of airfare during this pandemic, so. (laughs) I mean, I think Wow, 2022 sounds like a great year. I feel I feel positively about 2022. I feel positively <laughs> about anything else but the present, so let's do it. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I'm really excited to see what she does with the pavilion. Her work really has such a magnificent presence. And that same New York Times article that I quoted compared her work a little to Wenjichi Mutu, who we've talked about before in a few episodes, and the pieces that Mutu did uh, for the facade of the Met building. And in no way are they the same artists, but I'm so excited to see the expansion of Black art and Black women artists being represented and having this massive presence at these kind of temple-like and historically white and male-dominated artistic spaces like the Met, like the Venice Biennial. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited. Yeah, absolutely. Listing cultural appropriation, oral histories, and failures among the interests motivating her work, Lee makes mixed-media sculptures and installations, also including video, through which she speaks about beauty and the complexity of blackness, which, Bianca, as you said, is very similar to the work we examined from Mutu, as well as her use of earthly tones and elements. So congratulations to Lee. This is so freaking wonderful and much-needed good art news, I think. Yes. Last week, we started talking about some hauntology And for the rest of October, which is this episode and next episode, (laughs) we have got some more eerie episodes for you. (laughs) As a lead in to our topic today, we got some thoughts from a little art pop tart on last week's topic. So this cute little tartlet said, I'm just going to quote this it's a big block bianca your analysis of the feminist protests and ghostly calls to action actually directly mirror the popularity of horror films and horror literature often taking place in haunted houses a lot of horror films have a formula of wife mother woman acknowledges the haunting male counterpart dismisses the haunting Friends and family either mock the woman, disbelieve her, or she is too scared of judgment to mention it. Injury, trauma, and or death arise during the haunting. Haunting is resolved when others believe her and come to help. That is the baseline of hundreds of haunted house horror films, and stories directly correlate and explain domestic violence and abuse towards women. 
feminist theory 100% has a seat at the table when it comes to horror as a human fascination, especially since it's seen as almost inevitably in the history of women. Haunted House films are also some of the best visual explanations for gaslighting and gaslighting of women, children, and trauma victims specifically. Children in horror is tangentially related in the sense of child abuse, lack of agency, and parental control. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for these thoughts. So next week, we are actually going to get a little more into horror and gender with some monster theory, and I'm really excited to be talking about the vagina dentata, but I I took a gender and visual culture class and some film classes in college in which I met an amazing scholar who actually studies horror films and gender. And it was really from the perspective of this person in class that I learned so much about horror and how it's so tied to gender and feminist theory. Lynn, I don't know if you're listening to this episode, but I would love to have you on the podcast to talk about your work and your expertise on this. Um, I will say that in some research I've done in this area, Carol Clover is probably a great author to start with. In her 1992 book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film. It's That book has really achieved popularity beyond kind of academia. So I think it's a pretty accessible book for people if they're interested. It may be a little bit dated. I'm unsure of like the theoretical progression of the history of gender and horror. But Clover is really the first scholar credited with developing the final girl theory in the horror genre, which has changed both popular and academic conceptions of gender in horror films. So this is all super interesting to talk about. And I'm so thankful for the listener who was giving us this feedback. That's awesome. Yeah, I've spoken with quite a few tartlets over the course of this week. And I think that episode was so fulfilling for us, Bianca, because using mm-hmm. hauntology as a concept to fuel other intersectional investigations, which is, you know, what we do here on APT, mm-hmm. really resonated last week with a lot of people. It seemed like a big light bulb moment for a lot of the art pop tarts, using the idea of horror ghosts and the idea of being haunted to explore other concepts that we talked about, such as technology and how an artist's past or trauma can literally change and shape the meaning or reading of their work. So I'm excited that we are using this month of October to expand on these conversations because I know we can jump from topic to topic and these concepts can be overwhelming at points. But it's important to remember that if we are speaking about a certain lens in one episode, that doesn't mean that you can't use another concept we have talked about and learned on the pod to think about a current work that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. What I saw this week was internal investigations on past works discussed, such as Nandipa Mintabu's mirror image piece, which highly reflects haunted imagery as she preserves the memory of the body. And it was really exciting to see you all make these connections on your own, as we don't always have time to make every formal investigation each week. So keep at it, keep expanding, and keep questioning because your viewpoint is making us revisit and reinvestigate further subjects like haunted houses or the horror genre. 
Speaking of haunted houses, this is not at all the same type of haunted house that our listener was referencing in the cinematic sense. But Gianna and I were talking about the attraction of haunted houses this week, and we were thinking about the haunted fun houses that you usually go to during the month of October and how they might be designed and crafted. Uh, More specifically, how something like a haunted house might compare to a space like Meow Wolf or for our Oklahoma listeners, the AHA in Tulsa or Factory Obscura, these kind of fun house art installations and how that might be translated to something that seems more scary, like a haunted house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thinking about art installations turned haunted house or a place where ghosts can be found, there are a lot of examples you can think of that feel very tangible when trying to compare the two from the use of bugs on a very macro scale, either fabricated or actually real, overwhelming or chaotic material that envelops an entire space, perhaps. Even the use of bodies, again, either real or fabricated, or even the use of bodily fluid, something that takes us almost out of reality into a new kind of fantastical or even creepy world or using art and site specificity to elaborate on the traumatic or historical moment. The idea is also directly related to memorials as well, all which we have access to engage with in some form of contained or open space that can cause a variety of emotions. But thinking of this idea of installation art space and hauntology more broadly, for me, being haunted in art is also more closely related to the idea of preservation. We know that something that should have been gone for some reason is here and is Mm. being brought to my attention or recreated for me to either observe or engage with. And the list of artists that use this closely linked and tangible idea of preservation or recreation to the notion of being haunted It just goes on and on. Mm. I think a good example of this could also be the installation artist Rachel Whiteread, who makes, basically uses old houses, old buildings, Mm. and uses the inside of the house as her mold. And Mm -hmm. she has a team of people that literally dump concrete into these old houses. And so what we're seeing is the inverted representation of these houses, and they're massive, and they're plopped down in a variety of spaces, outdoor, Mm -hmm. indoor, really interesting. And there's something I think very haunting about her work. That's cool. I don't know if I'm familiar with her work. I'll have to look it up. I tried to look up some examples of haunted house design, and there were a few articles about how there are certain people who specifically design these spaces. And a lot of the articles that I read were more about the architecture of it all, how these people build a maze, a space that is designed for you to not see what's coming next. I couldn't find much about the artists who work in any of these spaces, but if anyone knows anything about artists who work on scary art or haunted exhibitions of that kind, definitely let us know because I'm super interested to see how those are made. Uh, Bianca, do you remember last Halloween where our Uber driver was telling us that he worked on haunted houses? Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. That was random. <laughs> oh my gosh, 
gosh, I forgot about that. Yeah, that's when we were going to the haunted zoo and we saw yes. Wang Coin and Katie Weaver dressed up as like bugs for oh, Halloween. Caterpillars. They were cute. Yeah, they were cute. Oh yeah. She was a <laughs> I think they were caterpillars. I think they were. We were staring at this couple that was so cute and was just, like, dancing, like, so quirky. And then it took us, like, half an hour to realize that that was Wing Coin. Good times. Well, on that note, I think we are ready to art pop talk about the history of human remains in museum collections and exhibition displays. As we started thinking about the outline for this episode, we were doing some research and I had to think about my own visual history with bodily remains. And I kept thinking about when we were kids, all of the Nova specials we used to watch and how the study of human remains have usually been presented to me as an archaeological study that these were studies done to advance science. And Gianna, I don't know if you remember anything different, and it may have been sparsely addressed at different times, but my museum visits and viewing experiences of this type of material didn't really address the idea of colonialism and that studying and displaying these remains could be disrespectful, could be problematic, and promoted global inequalities. Yeah, I I heavily agree. And we'll talk about that relationship between archaeology and religion and spirituality. Um, mm. But I agree. I, I never felt like that was something that was super addressed in the science channel. Mm. <laughs> right, on Nova. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a few different ways that we can approach this topic. There's the display of remains for exhibitions and in museum collections. There's the conservation and restoration of remains that take place behind the scenes of these displays. And of course, we also have the excavation of the remains, bodies that are taken from their original resting place and have been sent to museum collections around the world. So let's start with that original dilemma. Gianna, what does it mean for human bodies to be excavated? When did archaeologists start digging for human bodies, and where was this happening? So starting with archaeology, it is a study of the human past using material remains. These remains can be any objects that people created, modified, or used. Portable remains are usually called artifacts. Artifacts include tools, clothing, and other kinds of decorations. Non-portable remains, such as pyramids or post holes, are called features. So archaeologists use artifacts and features together to learn how people lived in specific times and places. They want to know what these people's daily lives were like and how they were governed, how they interacted with each other, and what they believed and valued. Sometimes artifacts and features provide the only clue about an ancient community or civilization. Prehistoric civilizations did not leave behind written records, thus using modern technology to study human remains in order to seek out specific information on people or civilizations, such as what plants did they eat, Um, and they can tell this through the bones. Although some archaeologists study living cultures, most archaeologists concern themselves with the distant 
past and wanted to study human evolution. So people have dug up monuments and collected artifacts or human remains for thousands of years. Often these people were not scholars, but looters and grave robbers looking to make money or build up their own personal collection, which is super creepy. (laughs) A well-known example of grave robbing has happened since the inception of the pyramids, kind of our classic example literally shaping and changing the way that tombs or burial chambers were built and concealed. Archaeology was also tainted not only through profit, but also through racism, as 19th century scholars sought out Native American remains to prove their theories about the inferiority of non-whites. Graves were robbed, and the recently dead were taken from battlefields. It wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that professional archaeologists established comprehensive ethical guidelines. So specifically in regards to the return of Native American remains and these ethical guidelines, we'll talk about that a little bit later in regards to repatriation. Present-day bioarchaeologists strive ethical standards as archaeology is still crucial in studying human history. As even those historic civilizations with written languages still only offer a very classist view of history and not holistically giving us an understanding of how people lived, leaving those without a voice or an education, such as the poor, women, and children, out of the picture, arguing that archaeology makes a unique contribution by correcting history's oversights, as the only way we can get that lost information is by looking at skeletal data. So what are these ethical standards, and what are they based upon? Well, the views vary from country to country. Some examples I found from National Geographic In Israel during the 1990s, ultra-Orthodox Jews who believe the human body should never be desecrated rioted against the excavation and study of human remains. The law in Israel now stipulates that any Jewish remains found at an archaeological site must be transferred to the Ministry of Religious Affairs for proper burial. Wow, that's interesting. Another example Native Hawaiians believe bones are the connection between the spirit world and the physical world, but Southern Europeans rarely oppose the excavation of human remains since bodies are typically buried just long enough for them to decay, at which point the bones are removed from the graves and placed in ossuaries. Ultimately, when assessing the ethics of recovering human remains, the key issue, according to Indiana University's bioarchaeologist Larry Zimmerman, is whether the stakeholders have a level of say in it beyond just the stakeholders who are in the scientific community. To put in other words, since the dead have no say in the matter, researchers are obligated to then consult those who have the closest ties to the departed, such as the origin, state, religion, spirituality, ethnicity, etc. I find this part of archaeology fascinating, as Zimmerman also pointed out in regards to the protection and repatriation of Native American remains, we've come to a point in American society that we recognize we do science for people. But the concerns of the people who are connected to the deceased sometimes have to come first, even if it's a matter of sacrifice 
from the scientific community's side. Many museums have human remains in their collections, which have been there for hundreds of years, in which case it's likely that these remains were acquired in ethically or morally unsound ways. Today, most institutions and museum associations have their own policies on the acquisition of human remains. So it's interesting because not only do museums follow their own kind of ethical standards, but they also have to abide by these laws depending on what region they're in, what state they're in. According to the Smithsonian, starting around the time of the Civil War and stretching deep into the 20th century, gathering human skeletal remains was a common intellectual, cultural, and social pursuit. Though not limited to professional collectors, the practice centered primarily on the changing and diverse network of scholars and scientists affiliated with a number of museums in the United States. Donations allowed certain museums collections to grow rapidly in major cities across the country. Bones were sometimes even sent to museums unsolicited. Others were gathered with more systematic intent, carefully uh, removed from cemeteries and other archaeological sites. The gradual and sometimes haphazard acquisition of human remains and subsequent attempts to draw important ideas from their study eventually developed into an outright competition to fill what we call bone rooms with these uh, human remains and sometimes mm. funerary objects, etc. Um, so it was this like rush to fill these museum collections as this became a normalized part of what you would see when you go to a museum. Uh-huh. The desire for scientific collections and competing ideas about race and history of humankind fueled the growth of bone collections. So I'm going to link an article that takes us through how an excavation or grave site is chosen and handled today, how the bones or the human remains should be documented, how they are cared for, um, taking us through it step by step, if you're interested in looking at that literal excavation process any further. Cool. I'm really interested in the governance of this, how different governments or countries turn that into law and how museums and collections are regulated. A lot of the stuff that I found was coming from the British Museum. It seems like if you're interested also, the British Museum has published a lot about the guidelines for how they handle remains. Yeah, I found that too. Okay, so now that we have a little more background on the excavation process, what happens once these bodies get housed in a collection? The long-term conservation and restoration of these collection pieces creates another type of dilemma or adds to it. There are a few different types of remains that collections usually can contain. Entirely preserved human bodies, fragments of bones or other anatomy, and cultural art and artifacts made from human remains. When we usually envision a completely preserved body, it's a mummy, right? It is important to note, though, that the mummification process does not belong to one strict culture or geographic region. So basically, I'm saying that not all mummies we see come from Egypt. 
It is a process used really around the globe. A mummy is a dead human or animal whose soft tissues and organs have been preserved by either intentional or accidental exposure to chemicals, extreme cold, and very low humidity, and also lack of air. So that the recovered body actually does not decay. This type of exposure halts the decaying process. Some authorities restrict the use of the term to bodies that have been deliberately embalmed with chemicals, but the use of the word to cover accidentally mummified bodies goes back to 1615 BCE. And I wanted to just give you all a side note that when I say BCE, you may know that as AD. So in art history, and I believe in history and museum studies as well, we refer to AD as now BCE, which is before the common era, and CE, which you may know as BC, (laughs) is the common era. So BCE and CE, the point is that they are less tied to Christianity. Mm -hmm. Same thing when you're studying architecture. Because of the conditions of the mummification process, the continual care and preservation of these objects is very meticulous. Fungi, pests, and microorganisms can cause the decay of these specimens when they are not quote-unquote properly stored or displayed. Methods of stabilizing mummies and halting that deterioration process include gas control, where the mummy is placed in a chamber or a bag into which fumigants are introduced. There's wet sterilization, where solutions are applied to the mummy to repel insects and the growth of fungi. Controlled drying, which reduces the relative humidity in order to stop those growth of microorganisms. And then there's Ultraviolet irradiation, which affects microorganisms by altering their cells. This is wild. Some previous treatments, which were thought to help the preservation of mummified remains, actually have led to further damage. These include curing the remains by smoking them and then applying a solution of copper salts to expose skin. So, In the past, there have been cases where our science was incorrect and it actually caused that deterioration. Bog bodies are another type of mummified human remains which have been found in peat bogs in various locations around the world. These remains have been preserved naturally in varying degrees due to the specific conditions of the peat bogs. Despite their natural preservation, these remains are really sensitive to deterioration after being removed from their original locations. Freeze drying is an accepted method of preserving bog bodies in museum locations. And I was also doing some research of different types of of preserved remains, and I found examples of skin with tattoos for example so i was looking at some early iterations of tattoos and and pieces of decorated and ornamental skin patches that are being cleaned and preserved in these museum collections uh i 
saw that too, um, which is crazy because I, it, it makes like sense, I guess, if we have bodies in a museum, why something like that, a decorative part of the body would be preserved. But it like really freaked me out because I couldn't help but think about like my tattoo and like a right. piece of me being in a museum. And I just got like, eek, like freaked out. Right. <laughs> I was thinking of some other interesting ways that human remains are put on display. When Bianca and I spent some time in Europe, we visited a few churches where they essentially cut a hole in the floor and let you see into the burial chambers underneath of the church just so you could see what was down there and see a bunch of Mm -hmm. bones. And there were a lot of historical sites such as old palaces or mansions turned museums where there would be skeletons or skeletal remains on display displayed as if they were just half excavated or erected, half in out of the dirt. And to tell you the truth, Bianca, I can't even remember why those bones were there other than it was felt almost like an afterthought. Oh, we found these bones on the site, uh, a a burial space perhaps, and now we have Mm -hmm. them. So uh, what do we do with them? We put them on display. Right, right. Bianca has been to the historic catacombs in France where, you know, it's an ancient resting place which is now open to the public all the time and it's marketed as a very huge tourist destination and the human remains Mm -hmm. are set up in ways that also appear very highly decorative. Yeah, yeah. It... I don't know how I feel about catacombs. I mean, the The catacomb in France, though, is also interesting because it's also packed with other history like uh, Napoleon mm -hmm. hid in there for a while or that's how he kind of fled through the space in the catacomb. So it's interesting because this place in particular is loaded with these other moments and histories. But it's, it's still crazy that seeing dead people is just marketed as a huge tourist destination. Right. And and I'm not sure that I'm opposed to I'm not opposed to visiting the catacombs in a way because those bodies for the most part have not been disturbed mm-hmm. and I and I like that they haven't been removed and put on display in a museum for the most part, but mm-hmm. at the same time Gianna, I feel kind of icky about the capitalization of visiting dead bodies but then it's a part of history and then I, I do that anyway like I I enjoy going to historical sites and giving museums my money and I don't right know. well I was also thinking about this and just being more critical of you know places I've been as well you know again like okay the capitalization of people wanting to visit cemeteries or other mm-hmm. grave sites and I was thinking about any kind of Jewish quarter in mm-hmm. Europe where right. um, the deceased from the Jewish community had to be buried in that spot in, within the mm-hmm. Jewish community. So you have this super interesting history of having to pile and bury dead bodies on top of each other. And you have these really cramped grave sites in these Jewish mm-hmm. quarters. And how is that even necessarily different also from seeing the actual burial chamber itself too um it's Mm. it's different but also to what extreme Mm -hmm. so one place bianca and i didn't go to while we were in the czech republic was the sedlik ossuary otherwise known as the church of bones 
So it's a small Roman Catholic chapel located beneath the cemetery Church of All Saints. The ossuary, which is a building or site made to serve as a final resting place of human skeletal remains, is estimated to contain the skeletons of between 40,000 and 70,000 people. Whoa. Do you remember this, Bianca? We were at that bar and people were like, are you going to go there? And we were like, "Uh uh-uh. No, I don't remember (laughs) that. Um, The... (laughs) Those bones have, in many cases, also been artistically arranged from decorations and furnishings for this chapel. Whoa. So the ossuary is among one of the most visited tourist attractions in the Czech Republic, attracting over 200,000 visitors a year. Dang. So in this ossuary, four enormous bell-shaped mounds occupy the corners of the chapel an enormous chandelier made of bones constructed out of human remains which consists of at least one of every bone in the human body hangs from the center of the nave which is the big middle open space of a church it has also skeleton head garlands draped between the central vaults of the nave and other decorative and ornamental designs around the altar. There's even a coat of arms made out of uh, skeletal bodies. And it's just really interesting to see this ossuary made for the resting place of these people. So they haven't been taken out of their original resting place, but it's interesting that historically the people, they've been arranged in this highly decorative way. Gianna, now that we're talking about this, I feel like I have a vague memory of like getting a pamphlet about mm-hmm. it. And yeah. <laughs> so what are the ethical implications of all of this information? Like I said, what we would presume to be a lot of work done by the British Museum, they have a guidance for the care of human remains in museums. That states in July of 2000, the Prime Minister of the UK and Australia met in London and made a joint declaration to increase efforts to repatriate human remains to Australian indigenous communities wherever that was possible and uh, quote unquote appropriate. In response to this, in May of 2001, the Working Group on Human Remains was set up to examine the current state of human remains within the collections of publicly funded museums and galleries in the UK. And they consider the quote-unquote desirability and possible form of legislative change in this area. So in circling back and thinking about the ethical standards for Native American and Indigenous communities in the United States, we have NAGPRA, which is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It's set up to involve returning Native American human remains and cultural objects back to tribal members or governments even centuries after they were collected by the wrongdoings of museums or whoever. But despite the protection and regulations of NAGPRA, several controversies surrounding repatriation and the protection of Native human remains still continues. 
the question of when federally funded museums and research collections will return tens of thousands of cultural unidentifiable human remains to tribes for burial continues to loom over us in the midst of Native Americans. So NAGPRA was enacted in 1990, so really not that long ago. But Mm. still tens of thousands of skulls, skeletons, human remains are in uh, storages of museums. These remains of indigenous people were rendered culturally, again, unidentifiable by the original thoughtless collection process and the lack of proper documentation from the people who originally erected or obtained the donated or collected Native American remains. Native Americans know that these remains will most likely never be identified, but they still want to return their lost ancestors to the earth with reference instead of leaving them in the collection. So they still want some kind of justification. They still want these people to be properly buried, even though we might not know originally what tribe they originated from. Several organizations, including religious and tribal groups, have formed to buy land for these burial purposes, which is incredible. The act enforces criminal sentences for grave robbing, so Although there's still issues with NAGPRA, it still has done some good things. It requires anyone who unearths remains or objects on federal or trust land to notify authorities and mandates the return of all identifiable remains and objects held in federally funded collections to their tribe of origin. So really, Mm -hmm. one of the big issues is that the human remains that are not identified Mm -hmm. It's like we're still doing nothing about it. Wow. Okay, so I think we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the massively popular exhibitions of human bodies. to talk about some more bodies on display. As I was thinking about this popularized and contemporary exhibition of human bodies, I distinctly remember some type of show coming to Oklahoma City, the Science Museum, the Omniplex, when we were younger. And I feel like mom really wanted to take us. And I remember being like absolutely terrified of going. I had seen those big billboards and posters about the show. And I knew that I like absolutely did not want to go to that. (laughs) So to prep for this, I was searching, you know, traveling body shows And I found that there are actually a bunch of different shows that are all kind of doing the same thing. They travel to major cities and museums around the world to showcase the different layers and different systems of the human body. A lot of these preach that this is done for the advancement of science. 
this is done to educate people about their bodies and what a healthy and sick body looks like. So I was talking with some people this past week and actually, and I was talking about this week's episode and how we're going to talk about these big body exhibitions. And two people I was with said that they have actually seen this show. And one person said that he went twice to see it in New York because he just thought it was so fascinating to see the different layers of the body. And it's interesting to me, I don't know about you, Gianna, that there's this type of blockbuster exhibition that is so fascinating to people. And I think personally, I have a a weird thing about bodies and medical information that I don't like. I, I don't feel the need to go see that personally. So it's interesting to me to be able to talk with other people who, who thought it was beneficial and thought that was really interesting. I feel like there's such a plethora of information that the quote-unquote lay person can access that I don't need to see a bunch of human bodies on display because I can access that information elsewhere. And again, for me, this is kind of going back to that means of making money. Yeah. I don't remember seeing one of these exhibits when we were younger, but Bodies Revealed came to the Science Museum of Oklahoma in 2017, so just a couple years ago, basically. Mm. But I asked mom about what she thought about these exhibits. And mom, Bianca, obviously, you know, is a total science buff. And she remembers it being extremely fascinating as well. But also really horrified afterwards when all these controversies seemed to come out in their, like, early 2000s. It was 2005, 2006, Mm. where all this kind of skeezy information about how Um, these organizations were obtaining these human bodies uh, came out. Mm -hmm. This was even a hard one for me to research um, just because even the images online are albeit fascinating, but personally just hard to look at as they, you know, they're not just skeletal, but they're created through a process called plastinization where the muscles, skins, and organs are preserved and the bodies are displayed and cut in Mm -hmm. a variety of ways to show the inner workings of our system uh, where the water and the fat are replaced by certain plastics and yielding agents that don't decay. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) What is disturbing, however, again, is this controversy in which these cadavers were obtained. So, Bianca, I'm not sure how many exhibits you found showcasing these cadavers Mm -hmm. like this, but it's my understanding that the two well-known traveling exhibits are Bodies, the Exhibition, and Bodies, World. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the creator of the process of plastinization was Gunther von Hagens in 1977, who is associated with the Bodies World Exhibition and manages these cadavers specifically. He says that every whole body exhibited comes from fully informed European and American donors who gave permission in writing for their bodies to be displayed. The issue with this 
is to protect the identity of the person, there isn't an accessible or clear paper trail for those Mm -hmm. of us who aren't a part of this exhibition. Those states that want to show these exhibitions still basically just kind of have to take these people's word for it. There have been some incidents where um, the state has brought in people who are experts in ethics to look at these documents and try to hunt down this paper trail. Wow. And it's interesting because there is some form of documentation, but also, again, the paper trail isn't super clear. Okay. So when it comes to the exhibition and others like it, such as Bodies, the exhibition, it is that we are literally, again, just taking people's word for it. When Bodies, the exhibition made its debut in Florida in the early 2000s, the state's anatomical board requested documentation proving the corpses were ethically obtained. Dr. Lynn Romrell who chairs the board, says it only got a letter from the show's Chinese plastinator asserting that the bodies of all Chinese descent didn't violate any issues. So again, no actual documentation, just a personalized letter. Mm. But Bodies, the exhibition, is also the one that has never tried to hide the fact that the bodies of the deceased are not claimed meaning Mm. that they were not formally donated, but because they were never claimed, they therefore are owned by the state. But major concerns have been raised by human rights advocates that the bodies are those of executed Chinese prisoners and that the families of the victims have not consented to this. It also has been a little bit suspicious. And Bianca, I don't know what exhibitions you looked at Uh but actually most of the bodies are kind of the pillar of health and they're all fairly young so yes there's some kind of uh suspicions about this right that's something that i think with when i started looking into this i was fascinated by the quote-unquote curatorial statement of this idea that they are they are trying to teach people about what a healthy body looks like but there are different degrees of healthy bodies and to promote one type of body is also not healthy for our culture right and and it's strange because I think we kind of hear this idea that oh we all look the same underneath oh you know all of our bodies are the same, but they're not. Mm-hmm. And another thing to think about is what does what does gender look like in these bodies? And I and I think that's something that generally I get frustrated with in the medical community is that women's bodies are not not studied to the to the degree that we need it to be, mm-hmm. if at all. And so what 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 do these different types of healthy bodies look like it's just it's really fascinating that even even a non-living thing can be something that is turned into into a promotion of a certain type right and it is really fascinating that still despite this controversy that these exhibitions still continue to travel around the world and bring in millions and millions of dollars Mm -hmm. and it's insane so it just 
seems like with these exhibitions, they just seem like very sticky situations, Um, Mm -hmm. just one after another. Even for Von Hagen's, who used to take his cadavers from former Soviet Union um, from, like, donations, but he stopped Mm -hmm. after body trafficking scandals in Russia and the Kurtz Republic happened. So even Mm. Von Hagen's, who is the founder of plastinization and seems like he's doing all the right things, skeezy things have happened when people try to donate these bodies to him. Wow. Yeah. Wow, I feel like we moved through so much information in this episode. But with that, I think we will talk to you on Tuesday. Sounds good. Bye, everyone. Bye.